Uh, just give me a second. Um, yeah. Give me a second. Tom, can you let Zelda out? That's got to go away from the edit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Australian Gothic, a podcast about Australian culture that is bad or complicated, and you're walking into a job interview. You've arrived nice and early at the Wilston branch of Australian Gothic Jet Skis, one of three in Brisbane. As you enter the car park, you notice that parked across two parking spaces is an oxide bronze dual cab Toyota Hilux. It's in very nice condition. Uh, There is not a scratch on it. Uh, You enter the jet ski dealership, and you notice that the staff already at this hour are like busy, busy, and everyone very pointedly avoids the gaze of an older man in his 60s wearing shorts and a polo shirt. The whole outfit looks like it cost over $300. The older man is looking at his phone judiciously. It's me, Lucas. Ah, <laughs> uh, here you are. Oh, nice and early. That's good. That's good. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the dealership. How are you going? I shake your hand, and you notice that I'm squeezing your hand like a bit too hard? And then I give you a pat on the shoulder and uh, again, like a decent amount of force. Um, you notice on the wall there is a photo of a much younger me playing rugby union. You can tell that when I was younger, I was a very fit man. Uh, age has caught up with me though. Uh, thank you for coming in. Uh, we're very happy to very happy to discuss this job with you. We'll just wait till my associate gets here. Ah, here they are, the bugger. Uh, you notice outside a car has pulled up. It is a Porsche Cayenne, uh, one of the ugliest cars in existence. It proceeds to park across another two car parks. And stepping out of the car is an older man uh, wearing a collared shirt and slacks. It's Jules. Hello. Good to see you today here, mate. Oh, nice you to bloody show up, eh? <laughs> ah, yeah, you know what it's like. Oh, on the piss. Oh, watch out for this guy. <laughs> he is <I>, trouble. <laughs> we sit you down at a table to discuss the position. A casual 20-hour-a-week job working in the dealership. You hear a rumbling outside the dealership. You notice that the windows have gone dark. The Hilux and the Porsche Cayenne have disappeared. The whole jet ski dealership is shaking. All of a sudden, we smell human piss. (laughs) And we notice that outside, everything has changed. The three of us, you, me, and Jules, we wander outside and we notice that we're... we're in... we're in the same place, but everything is a bit different. The roads aren't paved. There's a lot more trees, there's a lot more farming area... We notice a horse-drawn cart starts to wander past. Standing nearby are a gang of callow youths aged from 15 to 25 who eye us off. Oh my god, we've travelled back in time, Jules. I'll deal with this. I'm sure we can just find some local police to sort this out. (laughs) The gang of children come over to us. They start jeering at us. It's like, don't you bloody come near me. I own a jet ski dealership. I own a Porsche. The children start pelting us with vegetables. And they kick us to death. <laughs> it is a bunch of original larrikins, and they have killed us, the pretender larrikins. And you, listener, become their king. <laughs> uh, you use your knowledge of the coming two world wars and depression to uh, navigate through history, and uh, you have your smartphone with you, so uh, you do back to the future shit and make yourself a uh, king of the larrikins and king of Brisbane. Uh, good work destroying space time. <laughs> I think destroying space-time would be the ultimate larrikin behaviour. <laughs> and uh, with that very silly scenario, um, uh, we would like to welcome you all to our episode on larrikins. Um, Jules, uh, without wasting any more time, what is a larrikin? Ah, okay, so, well, a larrikin has had a few different changes, but in general, 
a larrikin refers in in Australian culture to someone who is a little bit of a silly dickhead, someone who pushes back against authority, who has fun, who uh, sets their own rules, and who can't be told what to do. It's usually it's it's very heavily applied to men, particularly white men. Very much. For for a whole lot of reasons we'll discuss, it gets used to... I th- a larrikin in its purest form, in the modern form, is supposed to be kind of harmless, mm-hmm. but it does get used to excuse a lot of very fucked behaviour. I, I had something in my notes, Ooh. basically, of that effect, yeah. so that's a uh, great minds. Yeah. So our loose structure for this episode, we're going to discuss the origins of the word larrikin, where it changed, which is sort of about World War One, and the modern use of the word larrikins, because original larrikins and non-larrikins are quite different things in a way. Mm. First thing, I need to cite a very important work that helped in the research of the historical part of this episode, um, the book Larrikins, A History by uh, Melissa Belanta. Oh, sorry, I believe they're a doctor now, Dr. Melissa Belanta. Um, it is a very good book. I recommend everyone read it if you are interested in, like, Australian history and, you know, but uh, it is a very good book and has been, like, an invaluable resource. Um, Jules, do you know much about the ori- the origin of the word? Yeah, um, so it was used about young gangs in, like, the later half of the 19th century. 19th? Yes. 19th, um, yeah. The 1800s, yep, in, in Australia. Particularly, like, groups of people who were usually quite poor, mm-hmm. working class, but also like specifically underemployed or temporarily and um, and precariously employed. We're talking industrial revolution shit where a whole lot of people are fighting for better workers' rights, but it hasn't all come in yet. There's a lot of job insecurity. There's a lot of poverty. And with that comes crime. And these were particularly groups of disaffected young people, a lot of the time men, but there were also lots of female larrikins and occasionally a couple of entirely female larrikin gangs, Yeah, which is, that's amazing. We need, we need some TV shows about that. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm, I'm shocked. No one has like, Belanta's book came out in 2012. I'm, I'm reading it and I'm just like, how is no one, I know they did like an old timey underbelly, but like, how has no one made this? Like yeah. there's so much you know, fuck, if you want, you know, you could do, like, Great Gatsby shit. We'll get into, like, yeah. some of the entertainment they got into, but, like, you know, how they entertain themselves. But uh, A lot of, like, low-key street gangs. Very much. Mm. Yeah, like, you know, rival street gangs. And, uh, yeah, Jules, you've nailed it there. Um, So the word first appeared in, like, court records in the 1870s. I believe 1870, actually, Um, uh, to describe gangs of, like, rowdy youths uh, from primarily urban areas. Um, When you imagine a larrikin in your mind, you may revert to like a rural setting or a remote setting but larrikins were a product of urban areas you know cities in a lot of like basically all over the world cities were kind of newish things Mm. um but you know in australia particularly another interesting thing is like yeah they were the products of like poverty they were products of like industrialization unskilled labor you know in factory settings there were labor movements happening at the time and weirdly enough um the larrikins kind of had a disdain for labor movements. They were kind of, they had a weird low-key hustle grind culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. It's just like, they want to be like hustlers. They wanted to, the ultimate dream of a larrikin in this era, like they also did like unskilled work, but they did like a lot of rag and bone stuff, you know, like collecting bottles, like 
building shit out of garbage and reselling it, mm. you know, pushing carts and, you know, selling newspapers. Like there was this, asp- I think the ultimate aspiration for a lot of Larrikins was to own a horse and cart, mm. which when you think of like things that teens aspire to, like how many teens want like a car or a motorbike or something like that? Like a horse and cart would have been their equivalent of like a Nissan Skyline. Yeah, and also like like a horse and cart would be transport, but it it would also create job opportunities. Yeah, yeah, they all wanted to be. Yeah. they all wanted in a lot of the Larrikin art that both came from studies of Larrikin culture or like imaginings of Larrikin culture, and stuff that the Larrikins, you know, the Larrikins enjoyed. There was this aspiration of like being your own boss, not having to work in a factory, like being uh, free to do your own thing. There was this aspiration of like freedom and wealth opulence, very much like, you know, people who are into hip hop, who, mm. like, who like, you know, just want outward displays of wealth. It was very strange. Um, they were street gangs, though. So there was like a lot of crime. Um, they got into fights. They, you know, called people insults. They, you know, hung outside of businesses and were nuisances. Um there was a very funny thing they did called bonneting people, which is when uh, everyone in that era wore hats and, uh, you know, quite big hats. Uh, not the huge ones, but mm. still like, you know, a little bit of room, you know, for your head. Yeah. Um, bonneting someone is when you use your fist and smash it down on someone's hat so it goes over their eyes. <laughs> so they're doing like, you know, weird bully shit. Yeah. Um, basically the sort of thing that like rowdy disengaged bored kids do yeah and an interesting product of like why larrikins existed is that at this point in from about 1820 to the 1870s apparently australia had like a skewed population like basically Mm. there was a massive baby boom which meant that at one point i think uh the population in melbourne was 40 percent under age 15 oh my god yeah, so they were just, there was just children everywhere. And, you know, society was, you know, rapidly industrializing and no one really thought of like, hey, you know, education didn't really exist and you unless you were like quite posh um, or at least it wasn't like, you know, mandatory. So so these kids didn't have anything to do. Yeah, like it's, it's sort of closer to the turn of the century that I want to say Henry Parks, but I might be wrong on this, but around the time of Federation in, definitely in New South Wales, but in other places there's this this push for public education and because previously like educate access to schooling is either it's through churches like churches are running it and um most of the time and it's not compulsory free compulsory and secular education was the the 1872 education act in victoria so just at this time and it's probably due to some of this um to to set up schools and, and make it at least primary education compulsory for everybody. And, and like free and secular is also important. Not so fucking free anymore. And it's not very secular. Um, Ooh, that's a yeah. different, <laughs> that's a different <laughs> topic. Yeah. Like there was, there was definitely by that point an idea that they had to do something about all, all the children. And because yeah. Oh, wow. If, if you're looking at that kind of level of, of like age disparity in a population, the childcare aspect would be like off the charts. And also like like education was like as as like the the industrial revolution was happening and there were more like growing socialist movements, there were big pushes for access to education for the poor. So that would have been part of it. And and like and that is important. There's also like one of the reasons that I saw cited as part of 
part of the reason that like some of that larrikin culture started to disappear was the growth of organized sport in the early 20th century yeah you saw you did see you're correct mm. you did see at this at this point as well you also had a lot of art mm. inspired by larrikin culture or like yeah. sort of changing and mutating it so you saw some of that behavior mutating into teams like mm. you know you're you know, if you're an athlete, you're expected to be like, you know, rowdy and play up a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you saw the, at this point, at that point, you sort of saw the end of the gangs or at least like, you know, a lot of the crime elements of it because they, you know, Larrikins did do bad stuff. Mm. They did, uh, you know, hate crimes. They did sexual assaults. Like, you know, they killed, mm. uh, killed mm. each other. There were romanticized accounts of like Larrikins being like organized crime and like, mm. you know, in some cases controlling cities and these turned out to be horseshit. Uh, can you imagine a bunch yeah. of 15-year-olds controlling Melbourne, like manipulating Melbourne politics I, to their end? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and I mean, one of the reasons that like, like sport is often a really good way of kind of channeling those like parochial, like like localist violent urges yeah um like the the urge to beat up a group of people who live in the suburb one over for from you <laughs> is is huge and you know a lot of the time sports rivalries are kind of a way to get that out healthily yeah i mean semi-healthily it does always then build into more violence but um it, it kind of keeps it manageable yeah very much so another reason larrikin's there was this weird, uh, Belanta describes in her book, there was this like, you know, push me, pull you effect where the word, la okay, so the word larrikin, there's a lot of discussion about where it came from. Uh, the closest thing anyone agrees to as the truth is that it's a, it's a word from Warwick, Worcestershire, Worcester, I know we did this on the other episode. Um, Worcester, Worcester, I think. Worcester. Worcester, yeah. Yeah. The English, the English have done so many crimes. Yes, very much. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so the word basically means like, you know, to lark about, to be mischievous. And uh, it emerged via journalists reporting on the phenomenon of like, you know, gangs of rowdy youth. And uh, Belanta even cites how some of the ways in which, you know, it is cited as being very similar to stuff like, you know, the Apex Gang or like, you know, just, it was a little bit of a moral panic. Mm. And it was basically, it was journalists trying to appear more in the know. So the word took off and then became kind of popular with the demographic it described. Mm. So that's where you got larrikin gangs or larrikin pushes or larrikin talents uh, identifying as such. Mm. And while, while you were researching this, when you were looking at like the youth angle of this, did it remind you at all of Eshays? It did. It remind. I think, uh, yeah, Eshays are definitely uh, the modern larrikins. Yeah, very much like coming yeah. into a kind of precarious, weird changing of like, you know, of work and, you know, money and equality and stuff like that. And larrikins had a cant or their own language to kind of like signal belonging to an in-group and also like obscure what they were saying and Eshays have like I think it's called Sway speak or something mm. like that like you know yeah. they have they do lots of pig latin -y yeah. kind of a mm -hmm. constructed language so yeah uh, basically the origins of, I've got it down to like three dot points um Australia loves to police children mm -hmm. uh journalists have always been annoying <laughs> yeah <laughs> actually sorry those are just the two points all so right I'll just... yeah no that's that's 
that's Australia does love to police children. It's funny, like again, the myth that like Australia is like laid back and easygoing because like in response to the presence of youth gangs, like I'm seeing this in my community Facebook pages, you know, when someone's just like, these youth are out of control. We got to form vigilante gangs. It's just oh. like, oh, fucker, we got to... No, fuckhead, like, we need to find stuff for these kids to do yes. or, like, you know, find ways to make their homes safer, like... Yeah, or, like, the... I know that we've talked about this on the podcast before, but the lack of usable public free spaces for young people is such a problem. Hmm. And, like, youth crime is a it's, a... it's a symptom of that. It's, like, it's a direct response. I had I had a lot of thoughts about this in terms of like inequality and and kind of cultural myths that we tell ourselves. Because because Australia does claim to love a larrikin. And yeah. there is there is certain there are certain kinds of larrikin behavior that we that we adore, but it's usually it's not young people. Like we don't enjoy when young people are breaking the rules like this. We we like it when it is Men who actually have quite a decent amount of power behind them. Very much. So, like, when I was looking it up, I was like, famous Australian larrikins. And they just (sighs) mentioned a bunch of celebrities. So, like, Bob Hawke, who was literally prime minister. Yeah. And, and, you know, but he he swore a little bit. Uh He drank like a fish. (laughs) And he was a womanizer. He had big hair and wore, like, you know... Yeah. Suits that were a little flashy for the time. If he yeah. wore a pink he wore a pink blazer once. Yeah. But like he was still you know, he, he was claimed to have been a CIA asset and and was literally held one of the most powerful officers in the country. So You know, famous larrikins are Steve Irwin. Yeah. I sadly thought of Bob Catter before has yeah. is has clownish larrikiny qualities that people use to He's he's a complicated figure. We may have to we will discuss him at some point. Yeah. Uh, sometimes a case of like worst person you know makes a great point, but um, but also is still a fuckhead. But we love someone who is a bit of a clown, but mostly when it's like a a straight white dude who has a lot of like you know social power anyway. Yeah, and who ideally isn't really shaking the foundations much. No. Um, when I was like doing a little bit of cursory research, I didn't do as much as you on this, um, I found a really interesting quote by Manning Clark from like the middle of the last century about larrikins. And this this is really interesting to me because this, for me, demonstrates how much the term changes. Mm-hmm. And this is, soaring over them all is the larrikin, almost archly self-conscious, too smart for his own good, Witty rather than humorous, exceeding limits, bending rules and sailing close to the wind, avoiding rather than evading responsibility, playing to an audience, mocking pomposity and smugness, taking the piss out of people, cutting down tall poppies, born of a Wednesday, looking both ways for a Sunday, larger than life, skeptical, iconoclastic, egalitarian yet suffering fools badly, and above all, defiant. There's there's an element of the literary figure of the fool, yeah, American, the fool mm. who reveals the truth through play. It's interesting that they say like does not suffer fools gladly, but it's like you know someone who is not intellectual but kind of like is able to intuit the truth or reality of a situation, 
And uh, mm. I'm going to kick that down the road because, yeah, uh, yeah we're, the ways in which Larrikinism can be, modern Larrikinism mm. can be, like, weaponized by people in yeah. power um, or or, des- or is desperately coveted by those seeking power. Mm. So Larrikins were, in a historical sense, Larrikins were, like, naughty little boys and girls who formed, you know, gangs and were just kind of nuisances and, you know, kind of aspired to be, like, hustlers. And it's interesting hearing about, like, whenever they earned money, they... Attempted to save it, but also, like, you know, so they could, like, you know, aspire to things, you know, get a horse and cart, be what's called a castamonger, you know, basically mm. someone who, like, sells veggies from a cart. Yeah. Um, which was the version of being, like, I don't know, a hustle grind guy. Yeah. Or, or performing on stage. Their version of being a rock star was, like, you know, performing in vaudeville. Yeah. And the links between, like, vaudeville, vaudeville and larrikinism are interesting because, like, you started to see, you know, theatres of that era, like, catering to their audience. Mm. Um, Theatre was sometimes classy, but, you know, at that stage, admission, the admission price was still only a couple of shillings. So, like, you would get larrikins going to these shows and, like, you know, you know, doing, you know, heckling and, you know, being naughty. And then mm. I remember reading that, like, in Brisbane, like, it was interesting hearing about parts of my city where it's like, hey, this street where your office is, they used to have, like, freak shows and burlesque and... You know, on a Friday night, kids would, like, go crazy. It was basically, like, a big carnival. And I'm like, we must return. I would yeah. love for there to be, like, stuff that is not just, like, pubs and pokies. Yeah. Even though freak shows, I know, are a problem. Yeah, we don't have to have that bit. We don't have to have that bit. Um, no, we can have, we can have like, I don't know, the, ta- the guys with hooks, uh, you know, piercings. Yeah, the human blockhead people. Yeah, those guys. The fire not- eaters, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's When it's... We are pushing the limits of the human body. That kind of freak show is amazing when it's here is like, just a, p- a person who a might disability. be disabled or might have body differences. That's yeah. Um, yeah that's less not good. That. Um, um, let's, let's quickly touch on the girl, the femme facet of it, because, yeah, like a, like you said, larrikinism is, a, is quite male coded. And but there were lots of like female larrikin pushes mm. there were a lot of mixed sex pushes and uh often the women would like were just as capable of like you know knocking someone the fuck out as like the men mm. yeah and uh you often had uh you see interesting facets of like cr- particularly in like the performance performances they went to you saw a lot of cross-dressing you saw a lot of like usually if it was men playing women it was like a very panto kind of thing it was not like female impersonation mm. drag, yeah. you know, a la RuPaul. Uh, but you also saw a lot of, like, drag kings, effectively. Oh, yeah, hugely. Like, um, queerness and and within, within, like, particularly working class and precariat crime gangs, you see queer people heavily represented and particularly um, queer women or transmasculine people. Uh, partly because there is there is such a rejection of of family, and also because um you don't have to be respectable. Yeah. And if you're like if you're uh if you're a transmasculine person or a butch lesbian, there is and and you're not performing femininity historically, you have lost access to respectability. So you might as well. Yeah. You know, um, the book Larrikins of History features photos of some of the Larrikins, and particularly some of the Larrikin women. Like, 
they're, you know, at this sta- this time, you have, like, you know, quite particular standards of, like, how women dress. You, mm. ha- you wear a bonnet, you wear, like, seven different layers of, like, skirt and blouse and scanty and whatever the hell they are, like... And uh, particularly Larrikin women were, like, quite scandalous for, like, wearing short, shorter mm. skirts, meaning, like, you could see a bit of calf. Yeah. Some of these women look like they they would probably knock me the fuck out in a fight. Almost definitely. Quite capable of defending themselves. Um, whereas at the time, like, you know, this is the era of artists like Norman Lindsay and, you know, papers like The Bulletin that would tell stories about Larrikin culture but would also just make shit up. And a lot of their understanding was that if you were a woman in a Larrikin gang, you were a doxy, you were a biker mole, you were just kind of there to be slapped around and be a sex object. And that wasn't necessarily the case at all. Uh, the, the book also, the book I read also features a lot of like really fucked art of like dudes hitting women. Yeah, that'd be a lot of it. It's like, you know, ha 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 ha, the Larrikins are hitting his wife. It's like, uh, in reality, like the lady and her friends probably would have knocked this guy on his ass. But And also like, Domestic violence was by no means limited to that class. Exactly. Like, let's, yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of that kind of false thing of like, oh, we must protect women from this, but it's the class conditions themselves that are making people vulnerable, not the culture, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you're happy, mm. we might progress a little bit to like how at this period, like, how the art kind of, like, crystallised the facets of Larrikinism that would, like, be carried on to future interpretations of it. Um, But, yeah, like, Larrikinism was the product of not having any social policies, precarious work, like, a real change to how... Like, real big societal changes Mm. uh, that resulted in, like, a refusal to look after young people or give them anything interesting to do. Yeah. Then getting angry when send young people, you know, get bored and destructive and, you know, lash out. Yeah, and, like, there would have been, because at this point, particularly for for working-class people, generally speaking, everyone was working. Men were working, women were working. And if there's that amount of, like, young people in the population... Who's looking after them? The child... Yeah, who's looking after the kids? And, And at this point, like, yeah, like we're saying, like, formal education is only just starting to come in. Like, even though you'd have people kind of loosely minding other children you know at this point it would have been teenagers being in charge of everybody or like older children and a lot of the time like older teenagers or even middle age teenagers would have been working or trying to work like this is sort of the time where places around australia start implementing some basic child labor laws um and some of it was like you know some of the early child labor laws were things like 10 year olds can't work a 14 hour shift or, um, yeah, yeah, things like that. So people are, are going largely unsupervised or being supervised by people not very much older than them. And workplace health and safety does not exist. It doesn't exist. And also there's a lot of poverty. Yeah. Like there is, there is a genuine need for these people to be trying to find money. There's a lot of, there's a lot of orphans. There's a lot of like unhoused children who are forming their own gangs and there's then there's gangs like adopting those those younger children to look after them like which we know is a facet of street child culture of people attempting to take care of of themselves and each other 
it's it's really grim because you know this is the era when like industrialization and cities really kind of like grew on each other mm. you know you needed a you know huge population of people to like work these work in these yeah. factories and before it you you know there were some big population centers mm. but people mostly lived in like little communities where you like you had your family but you know if something happened to your parents the community would sort of like look after you you know if your dad is like a psycho who beats the shit out of you there were like more safe places to go to and also like at this stage like yeah education didn't exist because you would just kind of follow your parents around while they did stuff usually agrarian kind of stuff you know while they fixed fences or looked after the livestock and you kind of learned how to do that by following your parents around yeah but you know because we have you know at this point these like rigid family units where like there's no real option of escape if, like, one of your parents dies or is an abuser. And, you know, there's no, not really a lot of social support. So, so yeah, you get people forming these, like, little crews to survive. And you've also got, like, a huge amount of immigration occurring, which was, was an active policy in Australia at the time. So you have family units coming over that are often just parents and children, not extended family units like coming for work uh, after the the great famine in ireland in the late 1840s 1850s you get a huge amount of uh irish migrants and yeah. and they are not they don't have those those community and family bonds um a lot of the time they're they're family units that are picking up and moving around for work rather than staying in one place and when when parents die, which they do, because there's, you know, the the mortality age is young. The poorer you are, the more likely it is you're going to die young from illness or workplace injury or from having like a thousand children. Um, <laughs> and children end up orphans all the time, but without any family or community around them to take care of them. And there are like, there are institutional orphanages at this time and they're horrific. Yeah. And people, even though you will, I guess, receive some basic care, everyone knows it's horrific and most people actively choose to be on the streets than ra- rather than be in these incredibly abusive institutions. Yeah, yeah. So we have, like, this population of people who are, like, forming gangs and are being menaces but are also kind of a demographic that is being... It, it's a bit like what we see with Eshes. There's mm. this like there's this moral panic about them, but there is also like a glamorization because they are young and they have their own look and there's like they have culture capital. Yeah. And what we see in this era is a lot of art about about larrikins. Um, probably the most enduring work, in my opinion, at least if you're a man my age, sorry, a person my age, uh, is the collection of works, The Songs of a Sentimental Bloke by C.J. Dennis. Mm is a verse story which was published in papers between 1909 and 1915. Jules, have you ever heard of this? I have, yes. It's been a while since I've read them, but I have. Okay, I yeah. I haven't read them. My my popper had it on his bookshelf and I was like, what the hell is that? Mm. Songs of a Sentimental Bloke is about a Larrikin push member called Bill uh, operating out of Melbourne's red light district. Um, But he finds himself striving for a gentler life when he falls in love with an uptown girl called Doreen. Uh, It is basically uptown girl, is my understanding. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, the civilizing, the civilizing influence of a good middle class woman. Of good pussy, yes. Yeah. (laughs) 
of 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 like respectable pussy in particular is <laughs> is the important theme here. Respect respectable pussy. The yeah. uh the unreleased Billy Joel song. <laughs> I'm sorry, are you still there? Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. Sorry, the signal cut out. I was like, oh no, did I break the did I break yeah. the stream? No, 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 no. I, I just I think I laughed so hard that my mic censored me. <laughs> Um, so, so you can find copies of Songs of the Sentimental Bloke and its sequel, um, The Ballad of Ginger Mick, I think it's mm. called online. The other famous character in the book is Ginger Mick. Ginger Mick is described as like, art often depicts him as a very gnarled root vegetable looking man wearing <laughs> a broad brim hat. He is described as like a very gentle, kind of funny, dumb himbo guy, unless you fuck with him. Then he will knock you on his ass. If you insult his girlfriend, Rosie, you are... You are in for a world of hurt. So you can find copies of all these books online they're, because they're quite old. Um, they're very racist. Oh, yes, so much. Particularly towards Chinese Australians. They're written phonetically in a slanguage, a bit like train spotting. It's interesting because you wonder, like, whether it was an accurate reflection of how people spoke at the time or whether... Because it reads as, like, an Australian accent, but you also wonder how influential it was in, like, enforcing a modern Australian accent, mm. if you get what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read a couple of pages of it and found it like, oh, okay, yeah, there's a reason why this book is kind of like, like Larrikinism itself, which we may get to, like has kind of, is starting to fall out of favour or be viewed as a bit antiquated. So, but these books, which were written by C.J. Dennis, who was a law clerk, very middle class, had no ties to Larrikin communities, so was probably like going by stories he read and probably just making shit up. This is often the case when you uh, write stories about popular groups. Like, uh, The Godfather made up a lot of stuff that, <laughs> like, crime families, you know, uh, Italian-American crime families adopted. The American mafia were just, like, dudes with guns and yeah. thugs. They did not have Godfathers. They did not have a a capoeira. I know, I, I can't remember <laughs> what's... A capo. Yeah. A, a capo, yeah. A capoeira? <laughs> no, my capoeira. You're not a wartime capoeira. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the book may have made up some facets, but it was very popular. It was made into silent films. And we move into basically the World War I period, which is where Larrikinism moves from street gangs to just kind of a mischievous Australian man. Yeah. Oh, another interesting tie to World War I, the character Ginger Mick dies in Gallipoli. Oh, bleak. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the end of the book. Oh, fuck. Oh, this this oh. lovable kind of, you know, kind of grim, violent character, uh, but who is like lovable, ends up dying in well in Gallipoli. I just realized that part of the decline of Larrikinism as a general thing is probably due to the absolute huge number of of working class young men who died in World War One. Oh, Jesus. Oh, that's bleak. Oh, and, and and we're about to explore the change from la from larrikinism from like street youths to just yeah. like you know a kind of goofy man. Um, yeah. And that's because uh, World War One happened, and uh, as listen to any military podcast and soldiers, it is not an Australian thing. Soldiers are also kind of like they do a lot of stuff. They hurry up and wait, and they are young men, so they fuck around. Yeah. They do. They misbehave. They do silly shit. Um, every second episode of What a Hell of a Way to Die is about, like, soldiers fucking around doing stupid shit. 
And I also think it was being a silly little guy, being mischievous, was also a coping mechanism for just how fucking horrendous World War One was. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of my one of the earliest stories I heard about like trench warfare is that if you got uh, killed in a trench, there was not necessarily time to recover the body because everyone was busy building trenches so mm. you don't get shot. So I know in Gallipoli there were parts of the trenches where there were just like dead dudes' hands reaching out of the walls because oh. they'd just been kind of yeah. buried there. And so in re- as a coping mechanism, dudes would just kind of like shake its hand as they walk past, just like, hey, how are you, mate? How? Just like it was a... You'd have to. Like there's no way for the human mind to deal with that other than humour. Yeah, and and it's not even a really an Australian thing. Like, uh, one of my favourite stories about Mel Brooks is, like, when he was serving in World War II and they were clearing a town in Germany, there were loudspeakers playing, you know, SS propaganda. And so in response, uh, Brooks set up a bunch of speakers to play Al Jolson. <laughs> so there was, mm. you know, this air of using, like, comedy to cope with, like, some of the worst atrocities uh, you're seeing and your friends dying. And it was out of World War One that the the larrikin is like a kind of mischievous man emerges. See, I think that's I think that's quite important because particularly in in a war context, there's only so much anti-authoritarian shit you can do before they take you out and shoot you. <laughs> yeah. Like quite seriously, there is there is only a certain amount that you're able to misbehave before the consequences get very real indeed particularly in this era when, you know, they won't, they can't send you home. So they're just going to, they'll either send you to really dangerous situations or they'll just fucking shoot you. Yeah. They'll just shoot you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thinking about the fact that the, the decline in that kind of larrikinism concept happens at the same time as there's two world wars within 20 years of each other. So there's like two generations that get militarized with, you know, the death that comes with that, but also the kind of extreme authoritarian stuff, but also, like, growing trade union movements, growing better workers' rights, although obviously the 30s is a bad time, and particularly after World War Two, huge social and economic programs that provide housing, provide work, uh, provide access to education and healthcare for a lot of people. Like, a lot of the the social conditions that lead to larrikinism kind or, or the at least the crime aspect of it fade away a little bit at least the abundance of youth crime yeah there's still oh there's always going to be yeah there was always going to be some but but not to that sort of same extent and it is quite interesting looking at the kind of the growing economic inequalities in the country at the moment uh-huh. and seeing that build again if if they had facebook community pages in 1870s Oh my god, yeah. That would be yeah, that would be fascinating because there is an extent to which groups of wealthy young men do dickhead shit all the time and they get sort of like it gets excused in a way that it doesn't for poor kids. Yeah. Um and a lot of that is that, you know, there's there's much greater access to the legal system, um to people in power in the legal system. It's embarrassing for a judge if his son gets done for stealing a car. They they have parental and family ties that can balance out the trouble they're getting into. They have parents who can pay off fines, things like that. So there's behaviours that very privileged young people, particularly young men, engage in all the time 
that doesn't like it, it has to get quite gross before the same kind of moral panic comes out about it. Yeah, very much. You can see, you know, people people will be more worried about a group of a seeing group of Eshes on on public transport together than they will about seeing a group of private school boys, unless the private school boys are being really actively disgusting. Which a few times, like, and every so often they are, because they're really taught that they're allowed to be. And there's a little moral panic about that. And the whatever private school they belong to goes, oh, yeah, oh, it's very bad. Oh, we're very disappointed. And then, you know, it sort of gets damped down for a bit, but nothing really changes. But th- there's sort of this idea that that's, that's a job for the school to fix. There is an institution that's already looking after these people who, who will take them in hand and sort that out. And I think that for like for Eshes and Larrikins, etc., there's this there's this kind of idea that they are they're wild. They are untamed. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the idea that that the state must get involved so much more. Yeah, they they might be a threat to like the property of like the judge. They may be. Ste- yes. Yes. It's okay if the judge's son steals a car, but but yeah, like not if the larrikins are stealing like the nice Porsche Cayenne belonging to a judge. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You make an interesting point about like after World War One that we start to get, and in a way, it is a product of art. Larrikinism stops being about youth gangs, starts being more about middle-aged, usually Caucasian, heterosexual men. Mm. And you start to see art either pander to this demographic or, or you know, just tell stories about this demographic. Or, you know, larrikins who get straight and get established eventually. That was kind of part of, like, the sentimental bloke. By the end, yeah. Bill, the main character, is kind of like, you know, a nice upstanding man, still with a bit of a rowdy streak, you know? Mm. And uh, another, you know, icon of the show, uh, Barry Humphreys, is another ah, yes. vector through which this comes through. Um, as we discussed in the Barry Humphreys e- episode... Humphreys was a bit of a snooty fuckhead and, you know, turned his nose down at this, but was still happy to, like, propagate the idea uh, through his comic, uh, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Barry McKenzie is, like, a loutish... Even has, like, the look of a larrikin with his hat. He drinks a lot. He swears. He has, like, very coarse language and, like, you know, his own own cant, which, Mm. you know, then spread into modern Australian culture. And interestingly enough, gets sent to London to, like, terrorise the snooty English, even though what we know about British culture, like, the British love sinking piss and causing mayhem. Like, Barry McKenzie yeah. would not be out of place in London. Yeah, well, just bits of London. And, <laughs> and I mean, that's that's sort of a very, like, I think something that's key to this idea of the larrikin is about the way that we have mythologised both Australian culture as a monoculture and English culture as a monoculture and and set the two apart. I think that, you know, Australia and, and the colonies are, this is this is unique. We are unique among the former British colonies or current British colonies because New South Wales in particular was the only one, or Tasmania also, but we're the only ones set up specifically as penal colonies. Yeah. Everything else is, is trade, is, is seaports in the, you know, about trade and transport, we were specifically set up as a place to park English criminals in order to maintain public order in the heartland of the empire. And so, and I think that 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 really influences our particularly fucked relationship with authority, where we want to think of ourselves 
as deeply anti-authoritarian. <laughs> we want that because that is that is key to the culture that we're not we're not licking the boot. We're not you know we're not giving in. We're not letting the ruling class have that power over us. But also, how dare these children fuck with people's hats? <laughs> yeah, in order to like, in order to to have legitimacy and safety, the only way we can get that is through obedience to authority. And so there's this like, yeah, and I think that that's why, at heart, the larrikins that we allow culturally, the ones that we we celebrate, are ones that have already gained their legitimacy and safety. Very much. Like middle class men with a decent bit of power. Um, sports guys. Shane Warne came up in a list of a lot of larrikins because he likes to drink and he liked to sleep around. And I'll, and I'll get to this a little mm. bit later. He was a little, he was a passive aggressive little bitch. He was. He was really snarky. There's a facet of larrikinism, which we'll get to in mm. a minute. Um, but uh, Paul Hogan was kind of one of the other people who codified larrikinism. And his origin was quite interesting because he was like a decently working class dude, mm. is my understanding, who went on a talent show and pulled the piss out of the judges. And it was so popular that this resulted in like, let's give him his own show. And then, you know, Crocodile Dundee happens. And then, you know, we will save that for the Paul Hogan episode. Oh, yeah. But yeah, there's a Belanta's book ends with a chapter where she's talking to like a family member an older family member who runs a business mentions oh, i'm writing a book about the origin origins of larrikinism and she says that like oh her uncle winks and says like oh there'll be a bit about me then <laughs> and uh yeah there's what we see now the main people who describe themselves as larrikins are like the hosts of the footy show yeah uh, rest in peace <laughs> old dudes who have really nice cars who are independently wealthy who own holiday homes. They love to think of themselves as like mischievous and speaking to power, even though they are the power. Yes, they are absolutely the power and they've been the power for some time. And I think, you know, part of the, the like the larrikin concept is, is the idea of, of pushing boundaries up against authority, but not getting in trouble for it. Like yeah. just riding that line, being, being clever and witty enough that you're like either they can't tell how you're taking the piss or it's so widely beloved by everyone around you that that you don't get in trouble for that because because you're so funny. Yeah. And the thing is that like that only works in its in its purest form up to a point and once you have a certain amount of power you're just punching down because there's no one further above you to punch up and it's, it's always really interesting to me seeing the ways that, like, the culture moves on from things like... But, I mean, the culture moves on because cultures evolve. What we, what we understand as being funny, what we understand as being, like, targets for jokes changes. And, and ultimately, in, in any society that does crave any kind of egalitarianism, after a while you can't really justify punching down. Yeah. Or even punching sideways that much. And like that's been, that's obviously a big change in, like there's something very different about a group of young men who lack access to power being rude. And like being rude to cops, being rude to authority figures. But when they become the authority figures, they still want to be rude to people, but there's no point to it. Like, and part of why there's no point to it is that there's no pushback for them. Like... 
if you have a certain level of power, you can just kind of do what you want and the authorities don't really stop you. So you don't get that kind of like fun little electric vibe from <laughs> being a dickhead. So instead it you change to targets that you do get pushback from. And a lot of those are more vulnerable targets who have kind of fucking had it yeah, and are like not willing to put up with it because they're just getting it from everywhere and they're just like, fuck you, you can't talk to me that way. And that, you know, and we see that a lot with, with like the whole moral panic about wokeness, which is just people being like, could you show us a small amount of respect, please? Australians love to back away and be like, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. Just a joke. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, it's a shit joke. Fuck off. Yeah. Another facet of it in social settings. Mm. Um, I've, I've worked in real estate. I've worked in like, you know, I do, you know, corporate videos. So I've mm. worked with like lots of petty business tyrants yeah. and real estate agents. Um, in Australia, the wealthy or people in power desperately want to be seen as larrikins or mm. desperately do not want to be seen as like, fancy or prudish yeah and you know that's where the anti-intellectualism side comes to it yeah i know people who own racehorses and boats and who like made fun of like someone a woman for having a plummy accent you know speaking in like a speaking like a faux english accent which fair enough but it's like you know motherfucker you can't really talk like yeah if you own a yacht i you own framed art that costs more than my car fuck (laughs) off Um, So this is really interesting to me because one of the things I found when looking this up, talking about the concept of the larrikin wowser spectrum. Oh, the nexus. Yep. So this was, and this was defined in 1960 by Eugene Gorman QC. So, you know, a person of of some power. Wowser is a simple, satisfying, succinct single word, which aptly distinguishes the whole race of windy, watery, cantankerous snuffling chad bands stigines holy joes and scripture sprouting sneaks hypocritical humbugs and unctuous dirty-minded rotters who spend their in their time interfering with the healthy instincts and recreations of healthy-minded honest humanity and also something inspector gadget says when he's surprised Uh, yeah yeah um very much so but like I like that concept of, of the, the, the wowser larrikin spectrum of understanding that while there, you know, when there are people who have that little respect for authority and are taking the piss all the time, there is an opposite guy who is taking everything seriously. And what I really love about this is that there are a huge amount of people who would consider themselves larrikins who are actually wowzers, and they are all on the community Facebook groups. <laughs> They've all critically defined their opponent who's like, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't, like, uh, film kids walking down our street. And it's just like, oh, you're you're a woke wowzer, basically. Yeah, like, but, like, filming children walking down the street is really fucked. Or, like, policing that level of behaviour instead of just being like, okay, they're kids, they're allowed to walk down a street. My house is insured. Who gives a fuck? Like, yeah. um, my if I see one more weird nighttime ring footage, ring camera footage of like some young people walking past a house, people looking at my car, like yeah, like they're just walking around. They're just looking at the world. They can't sleep. Like, yeah, yeah. I bet like half these dudes were like doing worse shit. Like, yes, almost t- certainly, almost certainly. 
Um, Why can't they just, you know, engage in homophobic attacks like I did when I was a teen? Yes, but like, and, and I mean, there's still definitely like aspects of of Larrikin culture that that like borders to, toward violence. I was talking to a friend yesterday about about hooning and 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 explaining that because she hadn't heard the word before, and um, and I was like, you know, dickheads driving around in cars being being idiots driving too fast things like that and she was like oh yes no 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 i know i i know about that i i almost got egged by some the other day which i'm like oh that's a bit hectic um but like that's and that still is that's not great you know but also running around doing some some eggings while not amazing at all is also a lot less bad than you know the the planned homophobic bashings yeah yeah. So, um, again, if there were ways to like engage these young people, like, you know, so that they had more, you know, had more interesting stuff to do than like running around being menaces. Yeah. There's a quite sweet level of, of gentle hooning that occurs here in Canberra, which is that we've got a huge amount of those, those little motorized scooters. Oh, yeah. The ones on the apps. Yeah. And, Around particular town centres, you can always see young people, particularly at night, like going on them together, which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and like, there's a lot of there's a lot of pedestrian areas, and so sometimes it's quite like I was I was out at a cocktail bar with my husband a few weeks ago, and and was sort of looking over Garima Place, which is like kind of sort of like a town square pedestrian zone. Um, you know, there's a lot of public art. There's places you have protests. There's there's a lot of shops. It's lovely, and there were a whole lot of like young people doubling up on the scooters and just riding around, <laughs> and it's fun. And it's a bit like you're not quite supposed to do it, but it's it's you know they might fall over and injure themselves, but in general it's quite harmless. You know, and like skate skate parks are, are a really good place because people can go there. They can they can get that that rush that they are looking for. Young people in particular want a rush. They want excitement. They want that dopamine and adrenaline. And they're not getting it. But there are ways to do that that are not really extensively harmful to society. But it does involve, like, setting aside space and resources to create that. And that's the problem is that a lot of people... A lot of the time, like, the the wowsers who, who think of themselves as being larrikins don't actually want to give up any of their public space for this. Yeah. They don't want to actively create that space. So they they complain about young people. And you go, well, okay, let's build a skate park. And they go, no, no, that will attract young people. And I'm like, the young people are here. And you are complaining about them. We could turn that block into, like, high-rise apartments that I can then buy and then, like, rent out. Yeah, yeah. And it's like when people get angry about teens using children's playgrounds. And I'm like, you have given them nowhere. They just want a place that they can walk to at night and have a conversation. Some of the deepest and best conversations of my teen years took place when I had snuck out of the house after midnight and just gone to the local playground with my friends to talk. Yeah. You know, just have a chat, play on the swings with no one watching you. You can just be a fun little dickhead without pretending to be anything else. God, I, a devastating thing to hear as a parent. Um, there is a playground sort of down the road from us. And, uh, before my, before mm. my second kid was born, I took my, my eldest kid down there 
you know, we were playing on the playground. She's quite a cautious kid. And there were like two, what may have been like 14 or 15 year old girls, you mm. know, just hanging out in the playground equipment. And at first I was like, guys, come on, you're a bit old. Mm. You know, didn't say anything mm. then. Then I could sort of hear their conversations and they were just talking like, you know, quite loudly, no filter about like uh, one of their mums, like deeply, you know, horrible mental illness and, you know, telling this girl to like, you know, do self-harm and stuff like that. Mm. And just like, oh my God. Mm. And and I realized like, because afterwards, you know, they kind of got off like the main slide and started like climbing up trees and, you know, you know, hanging upside down from them. And I'm just like, it really affirmed in my head that like, okay, teenagers are children. They are absolutely children. They have just as much right to this. And also like, where the fuck else are they meant to go? So yeah. I was just like, okay, fine, fine. Yep, yep. And like, where are they, where else are they meant to go where they're not spending money that they don't have? Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Like, go to the movies, which, you know, now costs a fuck ton of money. And that was it. When I was a teen, I was just like, there's nothing to do. There's like cafes and if you don't like coffee. Like... And also like cafes require a certain level of behavior. Mm. Like you can't hang upside down from things. You can't like be physical in that way that teenagers in particular need to be. We need like one of those ninja play centers that is just like <laughs> totally publicly funded and like you can go crazy. You can fucking leap off this thing because you're in a harness like, and you'll get tired out. That's the, the chief thing is my job as a parent is to just get my kids tired out so they yep. go to sleep there's, and, you know, and are stimulated and engaged. Yeah, there's there's some really, there's some, like, around around Canberra, there are a couple of really nice playgrounds that are sort of child and teen compatible. So there's one that's got, like, a lot of, like, kid play equipment like, obviously, for little kids and some swings and things like that. But it's also got, like, a proper basketball court with basketballs there all the time that people, like... Oh, cool. ...treat quite well. And I think the council, like, brings new ones. And, and like, a decent little skate park. Just picnic tables to sit at. Some of those, like, outdoor basic gym workout equipment things. Mm. And, like, a little dog park there. And it's sort of a place where you can... People can just go. Like, people can take their dog for a walk. Uh, you see a lot of, like, particularly after school, you see a lot of teenagers taking their little siblings there. Oh, that's And, like, cute. the teenagers are all hanging out, but the little kids have somewhere to play. And, like, the, you know, the picnic tables are undercover. There's a decent amount of cover there. I'm like, this is actually really lovely. This is, like, a really nice little space. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, we've just gone back into like social infrastructure policy. We've we've gone into a little bit of dad chat as well, yeah. which like ties in. Which, oh, good. I'm yeah. glad dad chat is back. But um, yeah. but uh, but we tapped into something earlier about like you can be a larrikin, but only if you have all the power. Like particularly yeah. in social situations where like you can sometimes speaking truth to power can is just a way to disguise being a prick yes and you know being a bitchy little fuckhead like i realize some of the school bully encounters i've had is like oh my god do you realize what a bitchy little fuckhead you sound like yeah yeah absolutely you're like finishing each other's sentences in like a sing-songy way like you guys are you know this was the language i used at the time like you guys are fucking being like bitchy little girls a bit you know, <laughs> i don't think you yeah. know, i try not to act like that now yeah. but you have to be careful saying that because you then, if you then speak back to the larrikin, they might just fucking hit you. Like, yeah. So there is very much like a, oh, you're a little prankster, but you can also throw down because there is a chance that like the things you're saying are going to cause like a violent response. 
Mm. Or, you know, if someone sn- speaks back at you, you are then just going to put them down with force. Yeah. And like, and I think that the kind of the, the force and violence aspect is, is quite interesting. Cause like, um, I don't know if this was as much of an issue in other cities, but a while ago in Sydney in particular, there was a, um, an outbreak of people, uh, king hitting other people or coward punching as it became known, which is for, mm. for international listeners, a, uh, it is where you go up to someone and hit them in the back of the head by surprise. And, yeah. uh, the reason there was a, a panic about it was that there were a, a number of young people who died, who were just mm-hmm. on a night out and some dickhead came up to them and punched them in the head, back of the head for fun. And they died immediately because it can kill you. Like, not just from, like, falling over and hitting your head. The punch itself can kill you. And um, it it partially led to draconian restrictions in Sydney, which were the lockout laws, which ended last year, the year before, where a huge amount of the city of Sydney, all trading ended at 1 p.m., 1, 1 a.m. and all... Discharging their drunken inhabitants all out into the street at once. All out at once, yeah. Um, My parents, they split their time between the city and the country for a bunch of reasons. And at the time, they were mostly living in, in Sydney and they were living near King's Cross. And they said that that 1 a.m. time with everybody pouring out into the streets was the most hectic they'd ever seen it. Um, oh. And like... It, and, and clubbing became really weird because, like, after 10 p.m., if you left a venue, you couldn't get back in. Mm. So, like, you couldn't, like, move to other things. There could be smoking sections, but you could not leave the boundary of the smoking section or you would not be allowed back in the club and you would just, your night was done. It was chaos and it, it just, it led to the to the absolute death of a huge amount of venues. It's important to note as well that... um. One area in Sydney that was exempt from the lockout laws was the casino. Yep. And so this essentially had the um, the effect of funneling everybody to the casino because it was oh, the God. only place after 1pm where you could keep drinking. Oh. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so... It's so gross and fucked. But um, there are, like... When I, when I go to my parents' place in the city now there are all these venues that used to be like long-standing nightclubs that had been there for decades and they're all 24-hour gyms now which is so bleak and interestingly like all the all the titty bars stayed open oh thank goodness there were like specific like different reasonings there but so, you know, that, that seedy underbelly of King's Cross is still there, which I think is nice. Um, yes. But, like, a lot of the just generalised nightclubs died. The music venues. And huge venues died. And, and, like, the only venues that really were able to afford to stay open were ones that had a lot of poker machines. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that was, like, like, a few people died from this, and the amount of of moral panic and like huge change to city policy that had uh, like New South Wales government policy that like had huge impacts on business and has kind of really wrecked Sydney as feeling like a good place to go out at night. 
And it also had the effect of pushing a lot of that real dickhead behavior into other areas of Sydney, like particularly like, you know, Newtown, which has been traditionally quite a lefty queer area. You just get all these dickheads who would normally go into the city coming out to Newtown because the lockout laws didn't apply. Oh. Yeah. And that's that's a really big problem because we know that like there's a whole lot of studies that say that um, when people go drinking and partying in their own community, they're better behaved. Yeah. Because there's social... Because they're going to have to deal with those people. In fact, my understanding is like, you know, in a lot of pre-industrial societies, like there were no cops because if a fight broke out between two members of the community, it was broken up. Yeah. And there was probably also like, you know, if you were someone who was like especially antisocial, you might be, you know, in some communities like ousted or in other communities just like, you know, taken out and shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um... When, when you can't do that community self-policing, the state steps in. And it's usually worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say usually because, like, obviously there are ways of self-policing that are, are very, very bad indeed. And, um, you know, and if you only have to look at the kind of the fucked Facebook wannabe vigilante groups to, to see how badly that can go. But, um, oh, and what Christ. they determine to be antisocial behavior. A fun moral panic that I do want to talk about... And, mm-hmm. and sort of one of the only people I saw, like modern larrikins I saw listed when I was looking at this, was a young man by the name of Corey Worthington. I can't believe I didn't think of this, dude. You're a genius. Yeah. So Corey Worthington was a young man who threw a party. That's, um, <laughs> that is the... The inciting incident. He was young. When he was around 16... In 2008, so that was 15 years ago now. Yeah. He was in Melbourne, in the suburbs. This is this is important. And um, his his parents were away on holiday, and they'd and it was it was the summer holidays. It was January, so it was the the long school holidays. And his parents were away, and they made they made him promise to not throw any wild parties. <laughs> and um, he he did a. This is sort of like the first of the big Australian social media party call-outs. Oh, yeah, really? The, like the idea that you could just put things on social media and tell people that a party was happening and everyone would show up. And it was sort of like like 2008, so Facebook was just very brand new. I don't know if we re- even had it properly in Australia yet. But, oh, um, yeah, it was it was around then. It was yeah. around by then, yep. Um, but, you know, you had MySpace, you had MSN, and he wrote, Parents away, tell your mates, you don't want to miss it, it's going to be huge. <laughs> and everybody started texting their mates about it and onwards, and about 500 people showed up <laughs> to this party for a, in a family home. And because obviously that was not, there was no capacity for that. It spread out into the neighborhood. Everyone was excited. And they were, a lot of them, again, not from that neighborhood. Mm. And there was no parental supervision. There was a lot of underage drinking. And there was a huge amount of excitement. Mm. Teenagers wandered the nearby streets throwing bricks and glass, jumping on parked cars, breaking letterboxes, and vandalizing front lawns. Residents were terrified. And they all called the cops. <laughs> Obviously. Um, there were police cars, the dog squad, and even a helicopter. I forgot about that. Yeah, there was a helicopter called. But at the beginning of this, the party goer was turned on the cops. 
<laughs> police cars were damaged. Uh, they got pelted with, like, officers got pelted with bottles and it took hours for them to be able to shut down the party. Yeah. Um, he was interviewed on television. And this is probably the thing that people mostly remember because what you had was Corey Worthington is a, and he was wearing sunglasses. He had like very scene kid looking like street oh, yeah. hair, yeah. A, a baseball cap that was off to the side. Shirt was open. I believe he had pe- nipple piercings. Yeah, which is like pretty hectic for a for a nine a for a sixteen year old. Um, yeah. He had these huge yellow rimmed sunnies, and he had like like he was wearing like a, an open hoodie and no shirt underneath. I mm-hmm. which is such a look. But um, yeah, he was interviewed on on a current affair, and it was like he was obvious like he was supposed to be being taken to task. Yeah. You know, and they thought that, like, and now, okay, speaking as a former teacher, if you're going to tell off a teenage boy, you don't do it in front of the class. Fuck no. <laughs> there is no, they, they they will not show any shame or remorse if they do that. They will double down. You take them outside and you have a quiet word to them. And that's where you'll see, like, they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, miss. But there was no way this was going to, like, he was on television. He was having the time of his life. He was so happy about it. And the interviewer, uh, Layla McKinnon, keeps trying to... Um, very school matrony, Like, you know, aren't you happy? Very talking him down. Very like, aren't you ashamed of what you've done? And she sort of finally goes, well, what are you going to say to other kids who are thinking of partying when their parents are out of town? And he replies with, get me to do it for you. <laughs> And, like, he, he actually had, like, a short-lived career as, like, a party planner and DJ after this. Like... Yeah. Because people were like, that that's an amazing party. And I'm like, was it? Was it really an amazing party? Because as far as I'm concerned, a party is not good if the cops show up. If any emergency service shows up, you have fucked the party. He was a dude, because I was like, uh, oh, in, I was 20 at the time, mm. and I was just like, this guy looks like the sort of fuckhead who would have made my life hell yeah. a couple of years ago. Uh, I I do, <laughs> but at the same time, like, the current affair presenter is such a fucking scold yeah. that you just can't help but, like, side with the dude. And there are points in the interview where, like, Corey, uh, he trips over his words a little mm. bit, you know, but eventually he feels emboldened enough to, like, yeah. sort of, you know, like, like, people struggle to speak on camera all the time, yeah. particularly if they're young. Uh, I've never, I've never really filmed a teen who wasn't awkward as shit on camera. Yeah. Um, you know, doing a piece to camera. Uh, but uh, but once he gets a roll on, once he realizes that how fun it is to tell this lady to fuck off, yeah. like he he easily wins the yeah. debate. You know, for lack of lack of better description. Yeah. It's also like his parents hadn't even managed to get back from their holiday before <laughs> this happened before he was on television. And I'm like, that's actually kind of irresponsible. Who was like, yeah. Um, you, you see this in upper class families. Like the parties like this happened a decent amount when I was a kid. I wasn't invited to them. And also I would have absolutely not wanted to go. Yeah. I would have found them way too, you know, scary. Um, I know a, a guy I used to be mates with, like had this happened to him, had a party. Cause mm. this was a way you could like threaten people as well. It's like, I'm going to leak your party's details mm, in social media. Yeah, like, yeah. 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 Hundreds of people are going to show up and they're going to wreck your shit. Um, this happened to a, to an old mate of mine and you know, we could, me and my mate, we live like, you know, a couple blocks mm. away and we could hear it. 
Mm. We were just at we were at home listening to like Queen records because we were fucking nerds. Um, but we could hear it. We were just like, oh, that doesn't sound good. Don't like that. Um, my husband's got a younger brother who was like about five years younger than me, and so when I and and you know I. I met my husband when we were in uni together, so I knew the little brother when he was still in high school, and he was at the same private North Shore boys' school that uh, North Shore Sydney, which is very fancy, um, that that my husband had attended, and um, he he was a good kid. I want to be clear on that, but his particular year cohort had some hectic monsters in it, uh-huh. and like at very very privileged hectic monsters. And there were, you know, there were all kinds of things that occurred, particularly in, like, when they were in, like, year 11 or 12 that we sort of heard about and were like, Jesus Christ, this is this is a lot more chaotic than anything we got up to at school. Mm. And and I think that that that, that year group had, had a lot more people with very high privilege. Yeah. You know, even for a private school, like, it really... It had really kicked off, and and I and I remember hearing stories about you know people stealing like cars together, like wagging Oof. school and stealing fancy cars in like Mossman, and hooning Jeez. around on them, and also one one party where people dragged a fridge into the pool and then poured kerosene on top of the pool and set it on fire. Huh. Yeah, and I'm like. That, you know, that all got kind of, like, papered over and, and no one really got into any serious trouble. I think there are a couple of mild suspensions from the school. One kid wasn't allowed to attend the formal. That was, like, the level of of pushback. And, like, the yeah, the more privileged you are, the more wealth that your family has, the less actual consequences you're going to face. I absolutely went to school, like, in a private school boy. Like, I went to school with dudes who were, like, even the popular kids mm. kind of, like, got sick of these dudes' shit mm. because they were just a bit bleak. But, like, these motherfuckers still wouldn't get expelled because, like, their dad was a lawyer and was, yeah. like, on the old boys' mm-hmm. council. It was just yep. like, okay, yeah, there's something fucked about this dude. No one wants anything to do with the motherfucker. Um, but, yeah, it's a... I, I know, you know, dudes who went to private schools whose parents had access to coke and gave it to the kids. A uh, dude I worked with was, like, propositioned by one of the mums. Oh, like it's, no! Yeah, fucked up. Like, yeah. It's, it's yeah, these these little wealthy hubs can be, mm. like, full of, like, fucked activity and abuse. And, yeah. and it's insulated because they're in, like, rich houses on the hill and there's probably, like, a, a code of omerta amongst all the rich fucks. It's just, like, yeah, when my high school kid, like, has a psycho pool party that like ends with like people setting the pool on fire somehow, Mm. like no one's going to report it. But, uh, so that seems to be in a way I was at, while we were recording, it occurs to me, I'm, I'm glad Eshes exist. I'm not happy about the economic situation that has caused them to exist, but like maybe we can claw Larrikinism back from like psycho rich fuckheads. I mean, I think we should. I think that like, and, and the thing is that like, generally speaking, the larrikins are fine. I mean, I guess I don't I don't wear s- sneakers that are good enough to ever get them stolen. So, <laughs> and I don't think actually I don't think we have a particularly large Eshe population in Canberra. We might, but I've just missed it. In general, I yeah, the the sort of the amount of fear of young working class or precariat teens is really overblown. 
one I've just looking I'm just looking at more stuff about this this Corey Worthington party, which again there was like thousands of dollars of property damage done and people like damaging police cars and throwing bottles at at cops. Mm-hmm. Corey was taken into police custody and questioned. There were no other arrests made. It seems like he was charged, but the but he was a minor and so the charges were not made public due to privacy laws. And like he definitely didn't serve any prison time. And meanwhile there are currently the age of criminal responsibility in Australia is ten in most yeah. places. And there are there are ten year olds in prison. Yeah. They are usually they are just usually black. Yeah. Like that's I think that's the thing is that that really demonstrates the level of like like how much race and class play into how we treat people like yeah cuz again you know a lot of older people are like oh this is disgraceful and a lot of younger people in his peers and even people who you know like you said were like well this is dickhead behavior were still kind of on his side because of the amount of pushback yeah yeah the wow's a larrikin spectrum sure yeah even if even if the larrikinism is is deeply irritating you don't want to be a wowser. <laughs> yeah, I you you don't mm. want to be a cop, but in Australia you also sort of want to be a cop. Yeah, oh, we love to be cops. The the really frightening part of researching this is yeah, just seeing that like wow, we have always loved policing kids. Yeah. And and we love like vilifying but also kind of glamorizing and fetishizing young people and it's a uh, really quite strange to see it emerging again at mm. this time. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know if there's an answer to I mean obviously like give people more access to cool things to do. Stop get rid of your get rid of your fucking ring camera. Yeah. It's not my business what happens outside my house. Yep. Yeah, the the sort of the the moral panics about but also like at the same time we So Mark Latham is is one of those people who is is actually actually just does fucked shit, mm-hmm. but still styles himself as a larrikin, you know. And we've talked we've talked about this on the podcast before. Is that you know, when he was running for prime minister, it was known that he had assaulted a taxi driver. You know, he had he had punched a taxi driver, and and like that taxi driver's arm had ended up broken. Mm-hmm. That's not fun, cute behavior. That's also not like speaking truth to power or um you know or standing up to authority that's just like he was he was a sitting member of parliament um yeah he was and you know clearly illustrated in the famous you know handshake that was ultimately his mm -hmm. downfall it was just like okay this dude is a fucking animal like you know i do not want to be near this dude i don't like seeing him like yeah the vibes are rancid and they've only gotten worse yeah yep yeah <laughs> you know, discussing larrikinism, one of the key things is that it now, aside from like sport communities, uh, it's see and whilst we see like a little bit of, you know, larrikinism within the Eshes, it's still the word and the associations are now very firmly kind of locked in with like men in their 70s mm. are men of like resources and wealth. So yeah. I'm wondering if larrikinism as we understand it is going to recede. Yeah. Or whether it's just due for another mutation. Or if it's like it's it's the language will move away from it. That it has it has changed so much and outgrown itself that 
now we just have the whole Eshe subculture and that that will become the new word for it. Yeah, it's finally happening. Like, you know, sort of settler Australian culture is like getting old enough to like discard old things. Yeah. Old cultural things. which God, is, I hope you so. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the better, we hope. It is, yeah. a, it is a weird, scary time and we hope that the horrifying animal that is, you know, white settler Australian culture, like, can grow in a more positive direction, as it were, or, or just be destroyed and discarded entirely. You know what? I will, I will say one thing about, like, a really cute Eshe prank that happened a few years ago that I thought was kind of the perfect form of, of larrikinism or mod of gentle larrikinism, which was on the, the Blue Mountains train line in New South Wales where a group of Eshe's got some screwdrivers and unscrewed all the seats <laughs> and and piled them up at the doors in and out of the carriage. <laughs> like like on but like at at one end on the way out. So then they got off the train. But they just rendered one carriage entirely um Standing only. Like no, in useless. Like no one could get into it. Oh and, okay. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually that's delightful. That's really yeah. funny. It's very irritating. You know? Oh yeah. But like it it creates more paid work for people. People like there would have been people who had to fix that up, but they would have been paid for it. It wasn't any kind of real ongoing property damage and no one was injured. Yep. yep. You know, it's it's people were inconvenienced. That's a great prank. That's the other takeaway as well. It's like, you know, any it it occurred to me a few years ago that people really started to do dissect the notion of like anyone who self-describes as a prankster. Yeah. And it's starting to understand like, oh, you're an annoying little prick. Yeah. You do like annoying mean-spirited shit and pass it off as you being like a prankster, as like a Deadpool type. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, at its heart, like, you know, doing silly little things that don't like that mightily inconvenience people or like are just kind of like dumb stunts, that's that's fun. We are, we are pro doing silly little things that don't hurt anyone or like severely inconvenience anyone. Yeah. If they're like the funnier they are and the kind of more, <laughs> I, I like a prank with a weird concept like that. Yes. You know, I like one that takes a little forethought. There's this, there was this one that happened in Melbourne. I want to say like a decade ago, but I have no idea of the passing of time, um, <laughs> which was somebody waiting at a, I think a train station with a big box of hot chips at peak hour. And just sitting there and and just eat, eating chips and every so often throwing one on the train platform to get more and more seagulls and pigeons <laughs> to, um, to like, congregate. congregate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I forgot the word. And I was like, Con conglomerate? No. Um, <laughs> congregate. And, and just slowly building up this bird army. <laughs> and then at one point, the train opens people go in you know like it's 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 peak hour so everything's full and shortly before the and he, he's he's got this whole army of birds paying attention to him and and right before the doors close he throws the whole box of chips into the train carriage bird train and the birds just descend at you know and the doors close <laughs> oh no like oh that's God. hectic Yep. Oh, getting them out would be such a pain in the <laughs> it would be ass. Like, such a pain in the ass. And like, 
birds were all okay. But yeah. fuck, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's just that's just a yeah. funny little thing. I would yeah. I would be like immediately moving to the next car because you know there yeah. are, there are options. You're not oh, yeah, fully trapped in there. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah, I am I am all for that sort of like pranking. Mm. <laughs> like even if you get caught up in it, that's funny as hell. Oh yeah, very yeah. much. Um, <laughs> uh, don't be wowsers, everyone. Don't be wowsers. Have a little bit of fun with it. Stop filming teens in your local communities, you weirdos. Oh, you fucking freaks. <laughs> if you if you think there are too many teens wandering around, uh, lobby your local council to build a really good skate park. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, get a hobby. Get yeah. a fucking hobby. Go to your shed. Go, Go to, to your, your fucking... shed. <laughs> Go to your shed, motherfucker. Get a fucking hobby. Do wood turning. Yeah. Paint miniatures. Yeah, paint paint Warhammer, like us, the hosts of Australian Gothic. I, I don't do that, but like it's probably only not, a matter of not time. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh Jules, is there yep. is there anything else you wanted to cover off? No, that's it. Anyway, uh thank you everyone for listening. Your homework this week is to go and be a silly little guy. Yeah. Have fun with that. Have fun with that. See you later. Bye. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you like the show and you want to support it and get access to monthly bonus episodes, you can support the show on Patreon at Australian Gothic Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at OzGothicPod. You can follow me at Luxasm, and you can follow Jules at Jules Furious. Thank you. Bye.